All right, well, hey, good morning um, and welcome this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jim Taylor. I'm one of the guys on staff here. Um, and if you are new or visiting, I would love to meet you after service on your way out. Um, or you can also fill out a connection card that is in your bulletin. Let us know a little bit about you, and then we can send you a very short email to let you know a little bit about us or connect with one of our greeting team out in the lobby. Um, so we'd love to connect with you. Man, this has been a busy week. Um, for those of you who know me, maybe know me well, um, you know that I, I love it, like, right on the brink of chaos. Like, when it is, it is about to burst open. Now, now, I don't love it when it gets into chaos, and usually I do push it to chaos, and I can't pull it back, but I just, I, I love, I love the, the, the fevered pitch of life and activities and everything going on. Well, man, for the Taylor family, it has been crazy. We had a son get, got married on Tuesday, family coming into town for that, traveling to the wedding and back and forth. We had um, Nora, who's our international student, um, graduate uh, on Saturday and then get almost right on a plane and head back to Thailand. And it has been crazy. But in all of it, in this craziness, right, and there's like, okay, not everything's smooth. But man, we come together as a family, we get the things done, we have to ha get done, we support each other, and we're there for it. Um, that happened for the Smiths this weekend as Darby was married yesterday. Um, and so the Smiths, all those moving pieces, trying to get it all together, the staff coming around and making everything set for them up in the chapel and, and everything falling in order, all coming around each other to support and be there for each other. Man, we're a family here. We are, we are the family of Calvary Church, but more so the family of God. And if you look in your bulletin, there is a lot of things that you could be doing to help and connect and support and be a part of. And that could be coming to the congregational meeting next weekend, next Sunday after service, to hear how we're moving forward and what's going on, to ask those questions that you've been holding on to and be a part of the body in that way. Maybe it's coming to the Philly Car Wash next Saturday and supporting our students as they head out, um, as they get ready to head out to Philly. Maybe it's grabbing something from our missions impact wall and connecting with some of the missionaries that we support, or still yet supporting and connecting with our DR team that's ready to go out in July. Or maybe taking a, a, a week of mornings from your summer and coming to serve at Summer Spectacular, where we still need adults, let me tell you. Um, and, and have the opportunity to serve over almost 300 kids um, and make an impact in their lives. Um, lots of ways to be part and connect as, as a family here at Calvary. So pay attention to your bulletin. Also, Backside gives you the schedule for the month of June. So if you want to know what's happening here on Sunday mornings, make sure you look at that so that you're not surprised when you come in here on a Sunday. Um, Okay, so um, I, I got to be honest, um, my first time preaching in, as we call, as in student life, as we call it, big church, um, so uh, a little nervous. <laughs> uh, probably what I'm most nervous about is uh, how long I potentially will or will not be. Um, so for those of you, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but uh, on staff, we love to tease Peter about the length of his message. Um, Love it. I love, his, love the word that he brings and everything, but it's, it's funny because we'll say at staff meetings, so hey, what's it looking like? And he's like, man, it's, it's 42 minutes on the money. I got it down this week. 
But the spirit moves, he takes a rabbit trail, and usually it's not 42 minutes. So we love to tease him. As a matter of fact, his record, would you like to know what his record is? His record is 65 minutes. Now, we have had some people come very close to that in the mid-50s. Hopefully that, will not, hopefully, that will not be the case today. I am a little worried that I take either the shortest crown or the longest crown. And those of you who are like, man, at the rate you're going right now, it is not going to be the shortest crown. That is, that is for sure. Um, so I better get started. So um, I know Dave's got a clock, Dave. I hope you're not counting the announcements as my sermon time. But I'm going to pray, and then you can start my clock. Um, Father God, Lord, um, man, you are majestic and wonderful, Lord, and we are so grateful to be here today, and we are grateful and thankful and privileged, Lord, that you are here with us. So we just ask you, Lord, to, to work in our hearts, to work in our minds, to receive what you have for us, Lord, and um, I, I'm, I'm, I stand here nervous, Lord, but confident in you, and, and I pray, um, Lord, that there's nothing in my heart or my life or anything going on right now. I drop those at your feet because I do not want anything to stand in the way of your word being proclaimed and it glorifying you. So I just ask you to be with us now and guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, well, if you were to look around, you were going to notice that Calvary Church, we are a pretty diverse group, okay? We're diverse in age or stage of life, maybe background of where we come from, where we live. Um, but we do have several things in common. And one thing that I think we all have in common, one thing that I think most people have in common, is that there are conversations in our life that we want to avoid. There are conversations that we just don't want to have. Now, they're different for the stage of life we're in, but there are still conversations we don't want to have. For instance, most kids in elementary school, man, they do not want to have the conversation about what is broken, what is missing, or what they didn't do, right? So they're, they're going to avoid those conversations with their parents. Teens, right? What is the number one thing, number one conversation that teens would like to avoid? Who wants to talk about boyfriends and girlfriends and all of that stuff, man? They want to avoid it. But teens, don't worry because that's right at the top of your parents' list as well. They don't want to talk about that with you either. Man, if you're in college, you know, so I've had several kids go through college, and I see it happen all the time. You're in college, the question, what are you going to do with that degree, or do you have a job yet, right? That's, those are conversations that they don't want to have. They want to try to avoid. Or young adults, you're out of college, you're starting to establish yourself. Maybe you've met that special someone, maybe not, but you know what? Grandma certainly wants to know, when are you getting married? <laughs> and just when you think you've gotten grandma satisfied because you're married, <laughs> yeah, you know where this is going. Grandma's like, so, <laughs> great-grandchildren? When are you going to have kids, right? Conversations that we want to avoid. Um, right, the, here's, my, here's my conversation that I desperately try to avoid in my house. Like, if I see it coming, if I can get out of the room, I'll go do yard work, I just don't want to have this conversation, is, can I use a car, and what cars are actually running right now? <laughs> car repairs are not the conversation I want to be having. Um, so we all have these topics we want to avoid, right? 
um, maybe because they're difficult to talk about, or they just make us uncomfortable. Well, I think for those of us that call ourselves Christians, for those of us that are Christ followers, I believe there's a topic that we try to avoid, and we actually do a pretty good job of it. And that is the topic of God's judgment or God's wrath. Now, if you were to ask someone, and I get a chance to do this all the time, what is your favorite Bible verse? People might give you a verse like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. Or 1 Peter 5.7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Not once in all my years has anyone given me 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There is nobody that has that highlighted in their Bible as their life verse, let me tell you. And just even in society, right? Judgment is just a word that, that we try to avoid, we try to stay away from. And I think as Christians, we've become so good at telling people that God is good and he is kind and he is merciful and Jesus loves them and wants to be his friend that we leave out or forget, or forget why all of those things are so important. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about what is preached here at Calvary Church. I think we do a pretty good job of going through the Bible and talking about what God is saying in it. Um, but I'm thinking like the, the modern church as a whole, or maybe us individually, and I know that I do it all the time. I don't want to offend or hurt someone's feelings, or maybe without realizing it, I get caught up in this feel good, what's right for me is right for me kind of culture that we're in. But the culture existed in other times too. Uh, in 1937, Richard Nyberg, who was considered one of the most important Christians, Christian theological ethicists of the uh, 20th century, criticized the then, back in 1937, liberal social gospel with this quote. A God without wrath brought a man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. God's wrath is as much of the gospel story as his forgiveness. But yet, for some reason, we tend to leave it out. Or if we do talk about it, we tend to soften it or to minimize it, and that just helps people create this kind of ambiguous gray area. God's judgment, his wrath, is as much of the gospel story as his forgiveness. Um, so now uh, this is, I heard a, a pastor tell this story, which is, uh, he was, it was a story of a story of a story. So I guess I'm telling you a story of a story of a story of a story. Um, so he, he was preaching this message, and then he starts telling the story of back when um, there were camp meetings going throughout the United States, or crusades, and evangelists would go out, and they would, everyone in town would come in, and they would, man, they would just proclaim the, the gospel. And these were the fire and brimstone guys pounding the Bible, pounding the pulpit, yelling at everybody. And so the story goes on. He tells a story about one of these uh, evangelists. And he, it's a, he was a big bear of a man, just tall and big, no hair, completely bald. And he was there, and he was preaching the word, and he was pounding the pulpit. 
as he was yelling at everyone to understand what God had done for them. And then all of a sudden, he steps away and he wipes his brows because he was just sweat was pouring off of him. And he gets in a real quiet voice and he says, you know, when I was a kid, I would help my mom in the kitchen. And we'd be working around the stove, which was fueled by fire, and I'd be helping her cook. And from time to time, I would make a mistake and I'd get burnt. And my mom would come over to me to, to, to soothe me, and she would put a pat of butter on the burn. And the butter would just make the burn just feel so much better, almost as if it weren't there. And then all of a sudden, this big, loud, booming voice, he looks at the crowd and he says, but there ain't no butter in hell. <laughs> Everybody now come forward, right? I mean, just like, man, if you were there, I'd be like, yo, sign me up. Um, but here's the deal. When we don't talk about God's wrath, are we just helping people put butter on a burn? Are we helping them to feel just good enough when we absolutely know there's no middle ground? There's no gray area. There is God and there is no God. There is nothing in between. And I think we're going to see that very clearly today as we take a look at Revelation 16. So if you want to grab your Bibles, grab your devices, turn to Revelation 16. And as you do that, um, I'm going to give you one scary look into my head here, right, into my thoughts. You know, like, oh boy, look out. Um, now, I knew I was going to cover this Sunday for Peter, I don't know, probably back in maybe January, I think, because obviously we knew Darby's wedding was coming, he was going to be taking uh, the Sunday off. Uh, but when we were doing it, we had a different series planned for June. Um, and because we want to get through Revelation now before the end of the summer, that series is now maybe being shifted, and we're just marching through Revelation in the month of June. And so when I found out that we're doing it and that I was going to be in, in Revelation 16, I was like, God, are you serious? Really? <laughs> My first time preaching in big church, you could have just tossed me like a softball, a nice feel-good message, something that you know we could just like 20 minutes cover and walk out feeling good. I'm like, Revelation 16, I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, there's some hard, there is hard stuff um, in this chapter. And so if, you got, if you're newer or you're visiting here, you're, on the, you're here for the first time, you haven't been with us as we go through the book of Revelation, this is, is maybe going to seem very harsh at times. I just ask you to hang in there with me as we walk through this. Um, so Revelation 16, here we go. What is happening? God's wrath is being poured out on Satan and the beast and all those that have aligned themselves with them. It started with the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and finally culminates here in chapter 16 with the seven bowls of God's wrath. The seven bowl or vile judgments are the final judgments of the tribulation period. They're going to be the most severe judgments the world has ever seen. And the seven bowls are described through this chapter in Revelation where they're specifically called the seven bowls of God's wrath. Now, under the Antichrist, the wickedness of man has reached its peak. And it is met with God's wrath against sin. The seven bold judgments are called forth by the seventh trumpet. Now, the pouring out of the seven bowls marks the final hour of the day of the Lord, right? Which is kind of God's will and purpose for his world. Uh, these bowls are the final outpouring of God's wrath on the unrepentant world before 
the return of the Lord. Revelation 15.1 tells us, Then I saw another sign in heaven, a great and amazing, uh, great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now there's some thought that these judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and then the bowls, are all different descriptions of the same event that they're just restating or repeating it from a different perspective. But I believe they play out more like a trilogy. They're each their own event, but they increase and build on one another. And we can simply see there, there are different events in that the seventh trumpet gives way and opens up the opportunity and the door for the seven bulls. So in this, John is recording God's wrath that will come upon the earth in the end times. And this will occur before Christ's return. All of life, all of history has been moving towards this end and Christ's return. So we're going to take a look and we're going to walk through these seven bowls. Okay, 16.1 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, if we jump back to chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, it tells us that the seven angels with the seven bowls are coming out of the tent of witness. All right? This brings us back to the Old Testament, where it's actually referred to as the tent of meeting. Okay? So we've got the Old Testament. Now, it started with Moses leaving the main, meet, the main camp and setting a tent up to meet with God outside of the camp while the tabernacle was being built. But once it was built, it switched to inside the camp, and the tabernacle, the name, the tent of meeting, kind of carried forth with that. And this is the place where God met with his people. Um, uh, it, was, uh, it was earthly made, constructed by man, but a place where the priest would then... then uh, do sacrifices, the place where God would meet and give instruction to his people. And it's all, it was a temporary dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the Israelites' connection to God was made. But if we take a look and we jump up into Hebrews chapter 8, it gives us a correct picture of what we're talking about, because these angels are not coming from that tent. They're coming from a much holier tent. Hebrews chapter 8 says, uh, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. The author is speaking of something even better than what was created on earth for people to connect with God. The actual heavenly holy places. This is the area before the very throne of God himself. This is where Christ is now a minister and Christ is now our tent. And we're seeing the bowls poured out from the perspective of this tent, of this holy place, a place where the presence of God is, a place where the holiness of God is, and a place where the moral commands of, God's, of God comes from. A place designed for meeting with God. A place meant for humankind 
to flourish with God is now where the final wrath of God comes from. So let's take a look at these bowls. The first bowl, the first angel pours out the first bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped its image. This plague is targeted at those who have committed him, themselves to the Antichrist. The second bowl, the second bowl is poured out on the sea, turning the water into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. Now a third of the sea had previously perished with the sounding of the second trumpet, but now the rest of the sea is gone. The oceans are dead. The third bowl, when the third bowl of God's wrath is poured out, the rivers and freshwater springs also turn into blood. And with that, the angel in charge of the water says, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. The altar in heaven responds, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth bowl is poured out, um, and the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and the sun is allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scarred by the intense heat. And rather than repent of their sin, the wicked inhabitants of the earth cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Now, this fourth bowl kind of hit me hard in thinking about it. Um, in my life, I have been burned three times, okay? Not like drastically horrible, but bad enough for me, right? So the first time um, I was a kid, and I was fishing with my dad on a beautiful sunny spring day out in a boat, and I took my shirt off and had the worst sunburn of my life. Had to go to the doctor, had to get medicine. Um, all I remember is lying on my stomach for days and days and days while my mom just kept putting medicine on to try to make it feel better. The second time, I was pouring tea out of a glass coffee pot, so a, a pot of boiling water, and somehow the handle or the pot broke, I really don't remember which, and it broke and it, it went all the way down my leg. Um, my parents had to rush me to the hospital um, and had the burn taken care of that way. The third time, I was an adult, um, should have been responsible, but I wasn't. I was working on a piece of lawn equipment and it was running, it stopped running. I went to go like squat down to figure out what was wrong. I lost my balance and I put my hand right on top of the muffler and it literally burned the imprint of the muffler into my palm. The one thing in all of those instances that I can remember is asking God to stop it from hurting. Asking God, because it hurts so bad, to just take the pain away. How deceived people are from the Antichrist and the pain that they are receiving, the pain that they are experiencing, that they are not crying out for help, but cursing God's name. The fifth of the seventh bowl, bowl causes the kingdom of the beast to be plunged into darkness. The pain and suffering of the wicked intensifies so that the people gnaw their tongues in agony. Still, the followers of the Antichrist refused to repent of what they had done and curse God for their pain and their sores. Um, just interesting note there, right? So here we are in the fifth bowl, 
and they, are, they still have the sores from the first bowl. And so I think that's showing us what, in what fast succession things are happening here. It's not like one bowl and then there's a time period, right? It is like God is pouring his wrath out onto the world. The sixth bowl, the angel pours out his bowl of judgment on the Euphrates River. Now, the river is already dead. It's, it's blood. It's no use to anyone, okay? But now the river's dried up in preparation for the kings of the east to make their way to their own destruction, okay? And then John sees three unclean spirits that look like frogs coming from the mouths of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, um, and the false prophet. Uh, the demons perform miracles and deceive the kings of the earth and gather them to the final battle on the day of the Lord. Under the demonic influence, the kings gather together in a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then finally, the seventh bowl is emptied into the atmosphere, and a loud voice in heaven says, it is done. And the seventh bowl results in flashes of lightning and an earthquake so severe that no earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. Jerusalem is split into three parts, and the cities of the world collapse. Islands are flooded. Mountains disappear. Giant hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fall on the people. Those under judgment curse God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Now, as we look at, at these bowls and we go through them, um, we should note uh, uh, one thing, that each of these bowls okay, are representing the destruction of something that God created in Genesis 1 and 2. God, God created in Genesis 1 and 2 what he created for the life and the joy of his image bearers is now being taken away. God's common grace, the gift of his creation, is being taken away from those that have aligned themselves with Satan. You know, a lot of times, especially students or kids might ask, they're, you know, like, you know, they want to know what death and hell might look like or be like. These, this wrath, these judgments you're talking about, this is... This is temporary, okay? Death and hell is eternal. Separation from God. The Bible tells us that, that we're going to be separated from God in hell. And also, we are gonna, it's going to feel like we're in fire. It's, there's going to be torment. This is just a small glimpse of what that is going to be. Now, there's such complexity in this chapter, right, um, that we could... Uh, try to discuss different things and try to figure things out, such as like, are these plagues actual plagues or is it imagery that God is giving us to help us understand the severity of his wrath? We could spend time, time talking about the third benediction or blessing that kind of appears in the middle of these plagues. Um, or the fact that the seventh bowl is poured out and a voice from a heavenly place declares it is done and how that compares to what Jesus said on the cross of it is finished. And I started trying to go down these different avenues as, as I studied this chapter and prayed about it, but God kept pulling me back to one thing. You see, sometimes I think we can get caught up in trying to figure so many things out when God tells us in his word, we are not going to be able to figure everything out, but we get so caught up in that that we miss what's right on the surface. And that's what God just kind of kept pulling me back to and pulling me back to. 
Because what we're talking about here, what we're reading in Revelation 16, it's not something out of a movie. It's not out of a book. It's not pretend. It's not make-believe. The reality is, is that this is going to happen in real time to real people. So I'd kind of like to take a look at three things that I believe are right on the surface that this chapter is telling us that it's leading to. And that is, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about the gospel? And what does this tell us about ourselves and godliness? So what does this tell us about God? I think it's simple. God is holy. So let's just talk for a minute about what that means. What does it mean that God is holy? It's probably one of the more uh, harder attributes about God to understand, to comprehend what this holiness is. Um, His holiness separates him from other beings, from other things. It, It totally puts him apart. It makes him distinct. His holiness is more than just his perfection or his purity. It's the essence, and I, this is, I got this from a, a commentary, and I just I, I love this the word, the way it says it here, and hopefully you'll understand it the way I did, but his holiness is the essence of his otherness. Right? It's, we, we can't understand, it's, it's other than what we have, it's other than what we, have, we understand. It's the essence of him being different and set apart. His, uh, his transcendence to exist above. He is independent from. He, is to, he rises above. He surpasses. It is, he is incomprehensible. And his holiness embodies the mystery of his awesomeness. Listen to what two men who had a glimpse at his holiness said. Revelation 4.8, John writes, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And in Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. The Israelites used to say, three, say things three times when they wanted to emphasize something and show, their, show its importance. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, God the Father. Holy, God the Son. Holy, the Holy Spirit. God is holy. And because he's holy, when God's holiness collides with sin, it results in his wrath, right? God's wrath occurs. God's wrath occurs when his holiness and sin collide. Because God loves righteousness and faith, he must hate sin and unbelief. He cannot love truth unless he hates lies. He cannot love goodness unless he hates wickedness. And he cannot reward 
unless he also punishes. Um, the Old Testament warns of the coming wrath and judgment of God, particularly in those passages that are describing the final days of the Lord to come. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 5 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The New Testament talks about it as well. It's everywhere. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 11 uh, verses 12 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming uh, after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9 says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And lastly, Hebrews 10, 26 through 30 for if we go out sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know by him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay and again, the Lord will judge his people. God has only one response to sin. There's only one response and that is his wrath. So I did, right, so when I was younger, I struggled because um, I lived under that wrath. I, I put myself there. I lived under God's wrath because of what I chose, because of the way I lived, because of maybe what I believed. Um, so I've been there. I understand what it is like to live under that. And there's certain things that I didn't know until later in life. So what does, what does this tell us about God? Okay, as we wrap that up, what does this tell us about God? It tells us that God is holy and his wrath is real and is just and righteous. All right, listen to uh, Nyberg's quote one more time. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. When we remove the concepts of God's wrath and judgment against sin, we lose the ministry of a Christ who saves.
right? So you might be sitting there, you know, asking yourself right now, like, why did I pick today to come to church? This is, uh, <laughs> this is not what I wanted to hear. Um, and like I just said earlier, uh, I was there. I was in that spot. I, I did not want to hear that, and I tried to get out from underneath it because there was something I didn't understand, right? I was trying to get out from underneath God, God's wrath. It only has, he only has one response to sin. That's his wrath. Well, I was a sinner, and that was his response to me, okay? But we got to hang in there because this is our lifeline um, that's being thrown to us. So now what does this tell us, right? We know what it tells us about God. What does this tell us about the gospel, all right? If God's wrath is real and just and righteous, but, and here's the but, it is not meant for us. His wrath is not meant for me, and it is not meant for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us to experience his wrath. That's not what he has planned for us. But, right, let's go back to what I said before. God's holiness has only one response to sin, and that is wrath. So how does that work out? Um, he hasn't destined us for wrath, and his only response to wrath is sin. Now, maybe you're saying right here, which is kind of a, a, a tract I took when I was going through this, is you kind of qualified yourself and your sin, right? Like most of us think we're a pretty good person. I thought I was a pretty good person. And so you compare yourself to others, right? Oh, I held the door for somebody person in front of me didn't hold the door. Oh, I stopped to help somebody on the side of the road. And all those other people drove by, so I'm much better than them. You know, I'm not, I just, my, like, a little white lie here or there. You know, maybe, I, you know, I did something I shouldn't have done, but not a big deal. And we kind of minimize it because we're comparing ourselves to others. But when it comes to sin, you're not comparing yourself to someone else, you're comparing yourself to God, which is why his holiness has no other choice but to bring forth his wrath. Let's take a look at Romans 3.23, right? Just in case you're like, hey, mate, this doesn't, doesn't include me, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. Little sins, big sin, doesn't matter. We're all there. But look as verse 24 comes in. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God has an answer for us not receiving his wrath. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, my sake, for your sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
God made Jesus to take our wrath. God's holiness has only one response. It never changes. His holiness doesn't say, okay, no, I'm not going to respond in that way. His holiness can only respond to sin with wrath. And it was poured out on the cross on Jesus Christ for me and for you. The outpouring of God's wrath on the cross of Christ was the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. Do you think God wants to pour his wrath out on the people in Revelation 16 who bore the mark of the beast, who have worshipped his image? Do you think he, he wants them to cry out against him and curse his name? No, he wants them to repent. That is his goal. He wants all of us to repent, to not receive his wrath, to receive his love, to receive his forgiveness. He wants them and us to know his love and his forgiveness. He wants them and us to experience the inheritance that he has promised, the inheritance that he has waiting for us as one of his children. So what does this tell us about the gospel? It tells us that God's wrath is not meant for us. Lastly, I know you're like, that's the word you've been waiting for. Here we go, lastly. That's a good, it's a good, when somebody's preaching, that's a good word to hear. It's actually incorrect, though, because it's like not quite lastly, but almost lastly. So what does this say about ourselves and godliness? Because God's wrath is real and just and righteous, because it is not meant for us, we must respond to it. And I believe that all of us would leave here today and we're all going to be responding to God's wrath in some way. We're all going to respond to it. Now, if you call yourself a Christian and you've received the forgiveness that Jesus offers, the wrath of God no longer applies to you. God does not see your sin. He sees the holiness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so his wrath passes over you. You should be leaving here singing his praises, right? Amen, right? You should be leaving here. This should be a happy day as you leave here. But it should also motivate us in doing what God has called us to do. When you've received that forgiveness, God calls us um, to be ministers of reconciliation, all right, 2 Corinthians 5.18. That basically means that we are to proclaim what we've already received. Right? We're to proclaim what we already received. But don't leave out what we have been saved from. Right? And that's a lot of times what we do, is, is we proclaim what we've received. We, we tell everybody the good stuff but we don't tell them what we have been saved from. That is part of our story. Right? We can't shy away from telling people what they're currently going to receive. But the good news is, right, if you ever were like, how do I do that? How do I tell somebody about God's wrath? That seems like pretty harsh, right? Go back to that 2 Thessalonians verse. Right? It's, his wrath is not intended for you. 
All right, and maybe um, you've been sitting there this whole time trying to think of like how you can get out the back door because you've kind of been kind of uncomfortable, right? This idea of God's wrath is hitting you hard. Um, but let me tell you, right, I understand because I've been there. I was no different than those in Revelation 16, the unrepentant, clinging to the lies and false promises um, of Satan, unwilling to let go of what I was clinging, clinging to and accept the forgiveness that God was offering. My thing was pride. And, oh man, I held on to it so well. I was so good at holding on to my pride. Both hands, not letting go. Such a firm grip I had onto it. What are you holding on to today? What is that false promise that we are holding on to? And if you're feeling convicted, right? Conviction is not a bad thing. Don't think like, uh, don't, don't think of conviction as bad. Think of conviction as God's invitation to forgiveness, right? If he's putting something on your heart right now, that is his invitation from him to you to receive his forgiveness. Remember, God does not desire wrath for you, but for you to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and if this is you this morning, please, whatever you do, this is not something you put off to tomorrow, think you're going to talk to somebody next week about, man, do not leave here today without talking to somebody. We're going to have a prayer team over on the right at the end of service that you can come and speak to. I'll be outside. You can talk to me. Talk to somebody that's sitting next to you. And if God is working in your heart today, do not, do not leave this place without responding to him. Um, and uh, so here you go. Here's your lastly coming up now because I'm going to invite the worship team um, if they can kind of head on up, and if I could ask our prayer team to head over to the corner. So lastly, and this is probably the hardest one, and this is probably, for me, probably one of the biggest things I struggled with in, in going through this message, is that this idea of God's wrath is something that we don't like to think about and we don't want to talk about, not because of ourselves, but because of someone we love or we care about. I guess that most of us here have someone in our lives, a family member, a friend, a classmate, a coworker, who at one point in time maybe we've invited to church. Maybe we've tried to share the gospel with them. And they said, no, thank you. They had no interest. That's good for you. It's not good for me. And it seems that no matter what we do or say, there's no inroad in sharing God's forgiveness with them. Coming to that, the grip of that idea of a loved one, right, not pulling any punches here, as is hard to hear, who would potentially be receiving the wrath of God is a hard thing to come to terms with. But let me just say and realize, right, that I understand what you're feeling, but I want you to realize this, because this is what I hold true in my life, is that I'm not responsible. God is, right? So we can't put the responsibility on us. God is the one who is responsible to call. Now, you're to live a life 
that points them in God's direction. You're to live a life that shares the gospel. You were to live a life that doesn't turn people off. I just, like this past weekend, and I think of my interactions with people and the things I say or what I get frustrated with. Am I looking at them as someone who is not receiving God's forgiveness and love but is wrath right now? Am I treating them that way? Am I trying to have an interaction with them that matters? Or am I more concerned about my inconvenience or how they've treated me? That's what we're called to do, right? We're called to make a difference. We're called to be Christ image bearers. And that's what we do for people who are still under God's wrath. And we pray for them, okay? We pray for them. And so um, in your bulletin at the bottom, there's a link to our uh, prayer form. And you can go on there. And if you have a family member, a friend, or somebody that you want and you know they need to know the love of Christ and you want prayer for them, you can fill, you can fill that out. You can put a whole story of who they are or you can just put their first name. And that'll go out to our prayer team and we will pray over those names. Or if that's not private enough for you, if you're like, oh, I just, I'm afraid I don't want to let this name out. My email's in there. If you send me an email, I will personally pray for that person. Give me their first name. Give me their initials. It doesn't matter. Just give me something. Just say, I'm afraid to give the name, but please pray for someone because I'll pray for an unnamed person because guess what? God knows who I'm praying for. Because here's the reality. I had pride so tightly gripped. And part of the pride was a religious pride because I grew up knowing things of God, right? So I grew up going to church. So don't tell me about things because I, I know. Well, guess what? I didn't know. <laughs> I thought I knew, but I didn't. But I, I clung to it so tight. There was no way I was ever going to let those things go. But the countless, countless people that prayed for me, that cared for me, that showed me what the love of Jesus looked like, in and through them and through the power of the Spirit, God released the grip and allowed me to take my hands and to reach for something different. Pray for those people that you know, that you love, that you care for, that you want to know the love of Jesus. Because God's wrath is as much of the gospel story as his forgiveness. God is holy and his wrath is real and just and righteous, but it is not meant for us. So respond and respond accordingly to that. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just thank you for being here, Lord, and we just ask your spirit to work in our hearts. Lord, we're all in a different place with you, and I just ask that you work to draw each of us closer to you from wherever we are. Lord, if, if someone is being convicted, do not let them leave this place without talking to someone and praying about that, Lord. And Lord, I'm being convicted right now of the way I treat others. Would you help us to show your love to others 
but not leave out the reason why your love is so important, your forgiveness is so important. And Lord, I pray for each and every person in this room and the connection and the family and the friends that they have and the people that they are thinking of, that they want them to know you and love you, Lord. I just lift them up. I drop those names at your feet. And I pray and ask you to work in their lives, to soften their hearts, to make them inquisitive about you, that your spirit would draw them to you and they would receive and know the forgiveness that you offer. And Lord, this was a hard thing to talk about your wrath, but because it's not meant for us, would you send us out today praising your name and singing with joy for what you've provided for us. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and that it is new in our lives each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.